and welcome to Veterans to Success. And today we have Lou O'Connell with me, MBE, no less. And what a great conversation. We've had several conversations. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. And uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, we've had a, a really interesting chat about the military, how it treats people and how what help is available. And one of the things I want to I want to bring through is your skill, knowledge, and wisdom in what you do, what you did in the military, and now what you do in your time out of the military. Before that, though, I mean, because we've all, I'd like to get an, an idea of what makes Lou O'Connell right. So tell me a little bit about your time before the military. Born in Liverpool. Back in there, uh, back, back in a long, long, long time ago, <laughs> 1977, and uh, all my family are uh, southern from Southern Ireland. So um, I think a little bit later we moved back to Ireland for a couple of years. So we spent about four years in Ireland, then came back to Liverpool. And my dad's um, a labourer, so I think there was job shortages and stuff back in the 70s and 80s. So came came back to Liverpool. Uh, and then, yeah, so I basically spent my time and grew up in Liverpool uh, until 19 before I joined the army. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like how do you lead into this bit? You know, it, it, it was a tough old 19 years, if I'm honest. So while we were living in Ireland, um, my older brother, who's just about turned seven, um, was unfortunately killed by a car um, crossing oh, the road. And then when, and then when I was 13, my mum and dad in sleep um, suddenly. So lots of, I suppose, well, yeah, lots of childhood bereavements, you know, cousins yeah. have died, grandparents have died. Um, so stuff that you don't really expect a young person to um, to experience. But, you know, looking back now, if I'm honest, um, it's kind of led me on the path that I've come to and to, to the place where I am now. When mum died, um, they, the adults thought it'd be really good for me to get involved in some kind of hobbies and stuff. And at the time I was doing martial arts. So that was already going on, and I was loving that. And then one of my one of the family friends was a, an, an adult instructor in the Army Cadet Force, right? So, um, so they thought it'd be a good idea for me to join the uh, the ACF up there in Liverpool. And I've got to say that was the absolute making of me, and that's what led me into a military career because I've got no military apart from back in the war. Um, you know, there's no military connections at all in my family. So yeah. Wow, brilliant. Thank, thank you. So, so thank you for sharing that the cadets was your bridge, I suppose, into the military. And, and that must have been really tough, a tough period for you with losing your brother and then and then your mum at such a young age as well. You were two and a half when you lost your brother, were you? Yeah, two and a half. So I don't, re- I don't remember my brother. Um, and now the days are going on, I hardly remember my mum. But I think, obviously, that was to kind of t- to, to grow up with bereaved parents. Because mm. you know, they were only in their mid twenties when Paul, my brother, died. So you know, so they they were only young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To grow up with them and them having to kind of bring up a a toddler, and mm. then and then moving to England and all of this kind of stuff. So it was a lot for them to deal with as well. And plus the fact, so your dad's over here as a labourer with, with you, and and he's on his own effectively, isn't he? Well, my dad at the time was working away as a labourer, so he came home, and unfortunately, it was on my dad's fortieth birthday that it also happened to you know talk about coincidence. Yeah. Um. And yeah, he had to basically give up working away, which was paying, I'm guessing, a lot better than what working in Liverpool was, and re-establish his kind of contact back in Liverpool, 
yeah. so that so they could be at home with me. So you know, it's a, a lot of upheaval. Yeah, and 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 I mean, the, the thing is that there's lots behind that. I mean, I know we, I know what we've been talking five minutes or so, and 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 you know, from where from where you were then to where you are now, it's totally different. And and at that time, that must have been really tough for you as a young girl as well. So so then fast forward to age nineteen, and you you you've joined the cadets. Then then what's what's Thinking, what's the thinking behind then? What do you want to do next and what gives you the inspiration? Uh, well, you know what? I wasn't bad at school, so I got the grades and could have gone to uni, but I was I didn't want to go to university. It wasn't my um it wasn't for me. And also I didn't really think I was clever enough, if I'm honest, looking back. So even though I was getting the grades, I didn't feel that I was clever enough to go to uni. And there's nothing that really struck out for me. So I loved being in the cadets. I literally spent most of my most of my time in there. If I could get onto any of the weekend camps, I'd be there. If any of the evening, mm. any additional stuff. So you know, and again, and you know what? I'm looking back. I was running away from the stuff at home. You know, I was running away yeah. from the evenings. I was running away from all that. But it gave me a sense of family, a sense of fun, a sense of um, so I say discipline, but you know, not in that harsh, you know, discipline. Just routine. And it just, and then one of the one of the adult instructors was um, they called them APs and I didn't really understand what they did but they but he was he was in the Royal Artillery if I remember rightly but at some point he did a stint kind of attached to the military police um, right. and when we were talking about you know I was like well, okay I'm going to join the army initially I was going to join the army as an officer which is why I stayed and did my A levels but then yeah. a toffee officer told me basically said my eyesight wasn't good enough but I'm thinking this accent wasn't good enough I don't think my uh, eyesight had anything to do with right. it you know what I mean because okay. my eyesight was good enough to get me in the army I don't know why it wouldn't have been good enough for me to be an officer do you know what I mean but you think <laughs> was it 19 the mid 90s right. so okay. it's all about this and this wasn't going anywhere uh, and it still hasn't no. Uh, um, so, yeah, so uh, that adult instructor was like, do you know what, you want to join the military police? And I was like, mm. and at the time, I, w- I was a little bit, I was I was very shut off and a little bit of a hard ass, if you were to put it that way. You know, I thought yeah. I was tough as nails, but tough on the outside, big soft in the middle, but you never got into the middle. And I thought, okay, let's let's go, let's go to the military police and let's um, let's uh, let, let's let's get paid to um, to be a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I remember my experience with military police, and uh, I actually, actually, I remember when I was in Germany, I wanted to be arrested by the military police. Okay. Because only because we were having we were having a bit of a laugh after we come out of a nightclub, and we were just running down the high street with some wheelie bins. Yeah. You know, it was harmless. We weren't robbing anyone or doing anything like that. But the German police got us, right? Oh. And they were going <laughs> to give us a hard time. And I just said, military police. And and you got oh, okay. And they did give us a bit of a down the bounce. And I had to go and speak to the SART major on Monday morning. It was a lot better than an armed police <laughs> in a Ger- Germans was going to treat us. So... Yeah, I mean, there's a good and bad in the military police, and at the end of the day, you got a job to do. And you were being paid to be a what? To be a, a well, no, that's, that's what my, it's hilarious though, because that's what my idea was. Because I was this cocky little nineteen-year-old. Yeah, come on, let's go join the army. I'll get paid to be a bitch. And do you know what? I was absolutely the opposite. 
Um, you know, and it, it took, so I did it nearly eight years and it took me seven years to make my first arrest and not because I was avoiding them, but because I had other ways of dealing with them. You know, it's like on a Friday night where the guys were a bit pissed up. Do you know what? I, I, I look at them and go, it's not like I don't get drunk, is it? So I'd have the, uh, what they used to call the battle bus, you know, the, the big bus with the cage in the back. Yeah. And before the before any fighting had started, I'd just be like, come on, get in the back. I'm going to drive you. I'm going to drive you back. I won't, and like, oh, don't, not to the guard. No, I won't, I won't drop you in the guardroom unless you're a bit of a tit. And then <laughs> you get a bit of gobby. And if someone got a bit gobby or call me a name or abuse me of any any time, they'd get dropped outside the guardroom. Because obviously you know what happened. I didn't even have to open my mouth. The, the corporals in the guardroom were like, what are you doing getting out there? <laughs> so I'd be like, whereas if they were decent and they just took a lift, I'd drop them around the corner, off they go, no rest needed, no million, mountain, you know, mounds of paperwork. What's the point? And also, mm-hmm. why, why wait for the trouble to start? So as I say, I was actually, I wasn't, I was no, I wasn't a bitch, and I was more interested in why people were doing what they were doing, and a lot of people were doing things wrong because of welfare reasons. So you know, people going AWOL well because their girlfriend had had a miscarriage. Yeah, people stealing things because they have to pay for something for their family, and it's not. I'm not, I'm not saying it's right, but there's always something underlying as to why they were doing what they were doing, and it wasn't just because they were they were asses. And, and that's interesting because when I when I work with uh, clients uh, about about money issues and stuff, whether it's to invest a lot of money or actually, I'm just giving someone a bit of coaching on on how come you've got like this. It, Everything happens because of a set of circumstances, a consequence of, uh, and and it's great that you were able to look at that and learn a lot. I suppose being in the, being in a position of the military police where you see a lot of stuff because there's all sorts of stuff going on in soldiers' lives and yeah. uh, and RAF and Navy, whether that be male or female, and, and that's an interesting dynamic which you probably would have seen. Male and female, and how that chemistry works. Yes, yeah, so you seven years to make your first arrest. So I don't suppose, <laughs> I don't suppose you were getting promoted because of that statistic, were you? Oh, no. Do you know what? And I didn't care, but it was, yeah, <laughs> it was the funniest arrest I've ever made, if I'm honest. What, 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 sure, sure it, was, it was like I, I got them all in my last set of shifts, and this one in particular was a corporal, female corporal. I was on, I was on the, the, the camera phones on duty. Female corporal, um, and all it is, right, you best come and arrest me. I've just assaulted the chief clerk, and if you don't come and get me, I'm going to finish him off. <laughs> and I was thinking, you lot know that, you know, this is my last set of shifts. Are you winding me up? And it's like, no, seriously. And, yeah, and to be fair, went down. This guy was a bit of an arse. Really? You know, and you know if someone just picks, pick, 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 and he'd been like that at her for ages and she just lost her rag and threw herself over his desk grabbed him by the neck and tried to throttle him the only thing and we had to obviously we had to arrest her because she assaulted, she assaulted him and also it was on the top corridor so all of the heads of sheds you know the the colonel and everyone was there and, and witnessed it so uh you know what from, from my first arrest it wasn't a bad one <laughs> out of interest was it? Was she banged to rights, and or did he press charges? She, she was banged to rights when she picked when she when I picked up the phone. She went, "Look, I've just assaulted this guy. Come and get him before I finish him off." I was like, mm-hmm. "You know," and 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 again, it was one of those you kind of you, you know we don't within the military you don't decide whether someone's guilty or they're not. You no. just have to collect the evidence. Um, 
part of me wishes, even though she was bound to write, that she could, you know, it's not right to assault anyone. But uh, it sounds like he deserved, he deserved something, maybe. Yeah. You know? But again, that's back, you know, that's back in the early 2000s when, you know, some some people did treat girls and women awfully. Yeah. And, and it sounded very much like this was the kind of dynamic that they had, um, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and and the thing is that I remember when I was in the NAFI way back, even before before you joined, we we shared a camp, uh, seventeen squadron. There, a lot of them were female drivers, women Royal Army Corps racks. The, this this particular girl, she was tough as nails. We were in the NAFI, and these two blokes who were visiting from another unit came in and started to give a grief, and I just thought. You don't want to do that, fellas. You shouldn't do that. And I'm just sitting there watching, uh, looking, gazing over the top of my pack. I said, whoa. And she throttled them. She gave yeah. them such, gave them down the bank. And I just thought, well, yeah, there you go. And, and and it's good to see that, not violence, of course, but it's good It's good to see that women can can hold their own. And, and actually, because there's no place for... And and uh, we chatted as well, and we'll come on to it. But uh, uh, now uh, about how things moved on. So after the Mercy Police, um, and if there's anything else you want to share about the Mercy Police, and it comes into your mind, you, we can do that. But then you moved on to your next posting uh, and your next step on your journey to doing what you do now. So what happened then after the... the yeah, I, retrade, I retraded to the Armed Welfare Service. Um, and, you know, and interesting enough, whilst the organisation had been there since 1996, not a lot of people knew what it did when I and I applied in 2003, it was. And so not a lot of people knew what they did. And in all fairness, it was still a mystery for a while um, as to what the Armed Welfare Service did. I think because with stuff like that, people don't, know what it does until they need it. I think that's the same with any kind of supporting agency. So the Armed Welfare Service is a part of the Adjutant General Corps. Um, so And it's a combination of civilian um, civil servants and military welfare workers um, from, I think, so from sergeant up to the very one. And the purpose of it is to provide social and occupational welfare service to, well, to the, the Army predominantly. We also They also work tri-service. So depending on where you are, could be with, you know, Army, Navy, Royal Marines. So, yeah, so so, so that I spent the majority of my 22 years regular service because obviously I'm still a reservist now and I'm attached to the Armed Welfare Service. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the rest of my regular service, about 14 years, was spent um, basically becoming a subject matter expert for welfare in the military. And what sort of, what sort of stuff because did you come across? Because when I, when I was in uh, and... So what? Well, it was introduced towards the end of my reservist territorial army. So we we never got that sort of stuff when I was in. It, it was just stiff up a lip and off you go uh, and deal with it. What sort of things did you come across? Because I would imagine that you were dealing with all sorts of situations. Everything and anything that was a problem, you know, and it's whether that be domestic abuse, child protection, relationship issues, bereavements, stress and anxiety, low-level um, kind of mental health stuff. Uh, you know, I even spent 18 months, obviously I live up near Birmingham now, but I spent 18 months up at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital supporting the families and the service personnel when they were coming back, when they'd come back from Iraq. Um, you know, so the families living up in Norton House and, 
and stuff and, and supporting them and just making sure they didn't fall through the net. So acting as continuity for a lot of kind of stuff. Um, the, uh, yeah, I think a big part of our job was acting as the bridge between the military world and the civilian world when it came to civilian organisations such as social services. Um, you know, so ensuring that social care understood the military and the military understood social care for when it was for when those kind of things were needed. Um, you know, we do all kinds of stuff, you know, advice on parenting skills, on kind of communication. Yeah, well, it was it literally it could be if you've got a problem with anything, just come and see me and we'll see what we'll do. Well, so, so you're pretty much the Swiss Army knife of psychological welfare then for military, military personnel. And, yeah. and that that reached out to the children and the wives or husbands of those in the military as well, didn't it? Yeah, we did we didn't we in the army we weren't dealing directly with the with the children, but you work with the children through the parents. In yeah, the yeah, naval yeah. the naval equivalent they work with, with children. But yeah, we'd work directly with um, with any any of the adults. Um but it is I suppose there's no civilian equivalent to what we did. It was, you know, it's a bit like counselor, mentor, coach, um, social worker, you know, all of those skills wrapped up into one. Where, as I say, there is no, there's absolutely no civilian equivalent to it, you know. And sometimes it might just be going for a chat and a coffee just to kind of, yeah. look at hasn't got that, that um, facility to do it. And what sort of training did you get for that? Did the training develop as the service developed? But, well, actually, it was quite well developed by the time I got across. Yeah. So the initial training, because so it's all done by um, selection. So you have to go through a fairly rigorous selection, and then if you and it was all, and it was if you were lucky enough to get through, most people didn't get through first or second time. Right. You'd then go on a six month residential, and almost a bit like a first year of a social work degree chucked into it, where you do things about three, you do about two or three months um, in the classroom, learn all about kind of you know. And theories of about well, human human behavior, people attachment theory, all of those kind of things, and then you go out and you do. Um, I'm sure it's about, it was again about three month placements where you'd be out there on the job, doing it, and then you just right. come maybe a week of consolidation. But then onward going, I've got to say now the CPD was second to none. The amount of you know, and I, at some point I, I, I was the training officer, a warrant officer. Right. For the organisations before I left, and looking at you know looking at the kind of at the time the money that was invested in us, unfortunately that money isn't there anymore. But some of the some of the courses that I've done, some of the skills that I've gained, um, just through CPT, second to none. I can't you know even you know and you'll know obviously I did a mental health nursing degree when I left, and actually I put the training I did in the in the army above the academic or the, above the university course that I did when I left because it was, it, we, I feel so lucky to have had those opportunities. And that, that's an interesting word you use, lucky, because uh, I have my own take on being lucky. Because <clears throat> what I use in, in is luck stands for labour under correct knowledge. <clears throat> yeah. Labour under correct knowledge. Because... Because I, I, I certainly think that you can be fortunate and you can be in the right place at the right time. You can also be in the right place at the wrong time. Um, so, and you'll know that of being a monkey, a military police, that people often get caught in the right place. Definitely the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, 
So that's interesting because I suppose reflecting on it, life in the military is like a microscopic look at life in all sorts of civilian situations because you get a lot in the military, don't you? Yeah. Um, you get you get violence, which actually is in, in the strictest sense of the word is what we're trained to do. Yeah, uh, and then how that can present itself outside of a combat zone where that sort of mental agility is lost and you're not able to deal with things and you just get trapped. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and, but I think also, interestingly enough, you know, and again, it's that civilian view that, Oh, it's okay. You know, domestic abuse happens all the time in the army, and violence happens all the time in the army or the military, because that's what they're trained to do. And actually, that's not an appropriate response either, because if you think about it, military personnel, yes, they're trained to be violent, but they're also trained to not be. You know, mm-hmm. you think, well, especially a lot of the as a lot of the more modern um, conflicts, a lot of them have been going in and not always peacekeeping, but uh, but learning that emotional intelligence learning the you know that violence doesn't always lead to the answer that you want no. so actually when you start looking at things such as domestic abuse and stuff like that actually that's got nothing to do with people's military training that's mm. got to do with power and control and that comes for people before they before they, they they'll come to the military with that with that kind of behavior and beliefs but you know but but also when people go you know so when people are psychologically damaged you know, and they're not picked up by the right psychological services. And if they're prone to violence, of course, that's gonna that, that's gonna be an indication that there's something not right. Yeah, and it's like being able to control the on-off switch. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you think about it, you know, and I get the amount of times I hear, oh, but he's a, he's a good sergeant or he's a good staff sergeant. Where it's like, you know, oh, he needs to go to anger management and they say I use he because that's stereotypically, but it could be she. Um, but. Actually, they don't need to go to anger management because are they going into work and knocking out the RSM? No, they're not. So no. actually, they can tr- control their anger. They can control their their, their 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 violence. It's something different when it comes to domestic abuse, you know. Yeah. And they could control, you know, and and and, and it's that power and control over their partner. And again, that could be male or female. It could be same sex fam- um, relationships. It doesn't have to be done in a, in a stereotypical heterosexual relationship. Yeah, because it's interesting. I, I, I always, as I grew older in the military, I was able to observe people's behaviour much more objectively and look and see what was going on. And and it's it's interesting how different people deal with the same situation. Yeah. In different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So so. The, the violence, I suppose, it's controlled by or it's controlled violence that you that you or you taught mechanisms, ways of dealing with the situation, which may or may not include a weapon or some form of item that can cause harm. It's how yeah. you it's how you perceive that and how you use it, isn't it? If yeah, that- but it- you know, my my friend, my civilian friends, uh, and they laugh because the, the, one of them introduces me as the train killer. Whenever she, whenever <laughs> she's like, "Oh, this is Lou, she's a train killer," I'm like, oh, "Technically, yes, but no." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, and and I mean, 
I I would much rather use dialogue to solve an issue. I, I, you only need to look around the world at the at the minute without without honing in on one particular place. The the, the fact is that there's lots of stuff going on that could just be solved by having a cup of tea and a biscuit. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I, I, and understanding each other, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that curiosity to find out about other people and other ways, and doesn't mean again, doesn't mean that you need to kind of back down and go, oh, you're you're right or whatever. But I do, you know. And again, I, I think from when, if I look at the successfulness between kind of the male and the female military police people in not arresting people, or in dealing with situations. The the women, the female, we always we'd always not talk people. We, we would talk people down, and not because right. we were scared of conflict, because it doesn't need to go that way. No, you know, it's those de it's the de escalation skills that I saw a lot more from my female counterparts than my male counterparts because ego was getting in the way. You know that whole come on then come and get me kind of stuff, yeah. and then and then that's going to wind up someone because it's wind me up. Um, you know, so and I think that works, and then that that's why so many transferable skills into the welfare world. Because when people come in, they're ranting, raving, crying, they're emotional because whatever's going on for them is really impacting on them. And again, if I took all that personally, or you're get you're shout, you're getting angry and you're shouting, actually, you're not shouting at me. You shouting at the situation. So I'm just going to mm. sit here and go let you. I'm going to let you do what you need to do. And then once you've done that, we'll then start looking at what the, what the solution is or what the problem is or whatever. And I think sometimes it's about letting people feel what they feel and, and also letting them do it in a safe space. You yeah. know, I think the escalation skills, you, I, as you know, you, you can't, you absolutely can't. They call them soft skills, don't they? And they are absolutely not soft at all. No. And I remember there was an investigation in... My camp, I was only about 19, 20 uh, at the time in, in Osnabrück. And we had a, a male and female come in investigating from the SIB, uh, and, which is, I suppose is the military version of this CID. The, it was like good cop, bad cop. And the fellow was really sort of stern, the alpha male. The female was really clever. And she got to the bottom. She investigated her interrogation skills weren't interrogation, although they were. Uh, and and they got to the bottom of it because there was some there was some thieving going on, which is a bad thing in your own unit. Uh, yeah. But they got to the bottom of it, so it was good to see the different dynamics. And I'm sure that continues now. So what was what was the most no names no pat drill? What was the most challenging time in in your army welfare career? Um, was it a period of time or a particular case or that sticks in your mind? <coughs> I think. Oh, excuse me. I think for me, the most challenging time I was having was um, I unfortunately had a. I'd call her a sociopath, if I'm honest. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, a, a supervisor, so a civilian supervisor who didn't understand the army, didn't understand army welfare workers. And this was, I think I'd been, oh, I'd been in 11, 12 years by now. So, you know, I knew my job forwards, backwards, backwards and forwards. Yeah. 
And um, I think that for me, that was more that was more mentally challenging because it was almost like she gaslighted me all the time right. because she was the social worker with the degree and all of this kind of stuff. And I was the team manager at the time doing what team managers when I when I first joined could do. But she wouldn't let that happen, you know. So it was like I was a warrant officer, and she wouldn't let me be a warrant officer. Right. And and again at the time, and and you know, sometimes it was a little bit political within that organisation because of the mix of civilians um, and mm. the hierarchy being a lot of civilian kind of social workers and stuff, and and that, and so and she had a great way of twisting what I was doing, and and, and almost I suppose isolating you but I think the one thing that she didn't take into account was we all spoke to each other yeah. so you know as fellow kind of um, team managers as fellow warrant officers we'd get on the phone and we'd have a conversation and again you know I'm a I'm a, I'm a big girl and if one of my if one of my, my kind of I say my mates because they're my mates yeah. if one of my mates would have said Lou no actually it's you and you need to think about da 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 you know I'd go okay Whereas they were like, nah, she's doing it to me as well. But we, it was that kind of, we couldn't prove it. Right. And stuff. So it's that, you know, so whilst that was a challenge at the time, and actually it was one of the, it was one of the challenges that led me to leave at the 22-year point. I did have an extra two years if I wanted them. Right. <clears throat> um, but I knew I could leave at the 22-year with my pension. And I was like, right, I, I'm, I can't I can't be doing with this. You know, it, it, my my mental health is worth more than this. Yeah. Um, and I'm done. And I've got my pension. So thanks very much. You're either gonna, you either know, People are either going to respect me as the experienced manager that I am, you know, or or, or I, can't, I can't really deal with it. Um, so it was, and it was, it was really tricky. I, you know, at the time, I'll be honest, I ended up having to go to therapy just to, uh, you know, a, a lot of work-related stress and yeah. stuff like that. And whilst it led me to leave in, actually it was probably the best thing that, need, that, that needed to happen. So leaving was the best thing that I need, and I needed to do it. Mm. I don't mm. know if I would have kind of done it at 22 or 24, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I say, it was, it was it, it, and. Yeah, it's hard to kind of quantify how bad that time was, but I hated the army when I left. Hated it. Mm. Um, and swore I'd never go anywhere near it again. I thought, well, I'll join the reserves because it'll give me some extra pocket money whilst I'm studying and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, five years on, um, that hate has gone, which is nice, and I'm in a good place with it. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and that's interesting that you ended your career because of something, an outside source that wasn't in the army. For what, what, I get, what I get there is, what, I, what the message I get there is, look, if, if you're in a situation, whether you're in a civilian job or the, or the army, navy, air force, if, if it's not working for you, then maybe you've got to change something. That's what I'm getting. You know what? Absolutely, and and I, I, they, I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with people in my in my kind of, in, in my life. Full stop. But especially as a welfare worker, you know, because for a lot of people who were coming in, it was like you know, but you're choosing to be here. Oh, but I can't leave the army. Well, you can. You're a volunteer. Yeah. None of us are conscripts. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's, I'm trying to remember people and say the amount of times I I had that conversation, and it was almost like putting my money where my mouth was. Mm. And it was just like, and you know, and I'd do it again. If something, if, if something is that bad, 
that it's affecting every aspect of your life. You know, um, actually, it's time to look at doing something different, whether that be work, relationship, friendships, whatever it might be. Um, you know, yeah, and it's hard to make that change, you know, and I was and I was lucky enough that I was in the position, you know, but I put up with that for about four years before mm. I was in a position before I was in a position because it was a year to sign off before I was in a position to sign off, you know, so and I still had to put up with it for the year afterwards, if you mm. know what I mean, until I signed off. But it's yeah, I, I do think because the only thing that we can change, and you'll know this yourself from the coaches, we can only change ourselves. We can't change anyone else. And so why put up with a situation that's crushing, that, you know, and it, it, it's, it is an absolutely crushing your life? It might mean that you've got to stay in the situation a little bit longer until you find somewhere else to go. Yeah. But make a plan. Yeah. And that's interesting as well because that that's something that I totally believe in. Situations go on, external situations, and and you have no control over that. The only control you've got is how you react to it, isn't it? So you've made this massive change now, and you just thought, right, okay, I'm gonna do one. And which is and, and to civilians who are listening, it's always it's always made me chuckle. <laughs> Unless you get an immediate dismissal, and even then it would be con- con- a visit to Colchester first, probably. Um which you, you you know about, not from personal experience. Colchester's the best place to go for your resettlement. It, well, actually, I would Absolutely imagine is. Colchester yeah. is a great place to get. Not a good place to go, though, let me just say. Sorry? It's like, no kids, don't go to Colchester. It's yeah. not. But actually, the, the resettlement that people get when they're leaving, whilst they're going through their sentence, is, is phenomenal. Yeah, because the army, the army's got a lot of money to spend on training. Well, maybe not as much as it used to, but it certainly does do good training. And uh, so, the fact is that you've got to give a year's notice. That always makes me chuckle. People, yeah. people think, oh, I've got to give three months' notice. That's a long time. Have a go at a year's notice because your promotion is going to stop. You'll get treated differently. Well, I found that I did. Uh, not not in not in a particularly nasty way. I didn't get any of the Gucci jobs. I didn't get any of the good jobs. I got the the other stuff, I suppose. But I, I was I was I was pretty good at what I did. So I I still got good jobs. But the fact is that I know some people who weren't as fortunate did get sidelined. So why waste why waste time on someone that's leaving? You know, I get it. I, yeah, I yeah. it's not right, but I get it. Yeah, and. Uh, so you jump shit. How did you find the transition? Um, do you know, I think I, I took advantage of everything that was offered. Um, because I was going to uni, I didn't really feel like I needed that much support, finding jobs, doing courses. You know, I've got qualifications as long as my arm. Um, so it's like, and I'm going to uni anyway, and I'm going to become a mental health nurse, and this is what I'm going to do. So I was all sorted with that. I did sign off before I left the military police, and actually, the I, I got the the tran- the transition had had developed a, a lot more a lot since then. You know, it was literally, I know when you do the career transition back when it was like 2002 or something, it was literally girls became beauticians and hairdressers, and boys became oh, so, yeah. yeah. You know, that's what that was set up for. Whereas 
when I did it this time, um, it was more set up for people to be able to just look. And I think it was more looking at, looking at skills and actually helping you unpick what strengths you had, what you were interested in, and then maybe direct you down the kind of jobs that you'd be more suited for. Um, and then linking you in if if you wanted to, you know, with kind of um, support with getting jobs and and, you know, and you'd have that for two years and stuff like that. But again, that was fairly wasted on me because I'd gone to university. Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm honest, my tra- my difficulty with transitioning didn't come until about two years, well, about halfway through my degree. So almost, what, 18 months, two years after leaving. And it wasn't, the transition wasn't difficult because, (coughs) um, because jobs and housing and stuff, for me, it was more about the psychological bit. So with the identity, I didn't actually know who I was. I wasn't sure how to, you know, and people ask you, who who are you? What do you do? I wasn't sure how to even introduce myself anymore. Um, but a lot of that was due to overload. I'd literally started a degree and never took a day off, which wasn't good. Um, and it was like, well, am I a veteran? Am I, I don't even know who Lou was before becoming a soldier. I used to be in the army. I was, am I still in the army? I'm a reservist. Am I a student nurse? Am I, and, it, and, and that for me was, that was the kind of, that, that was when the struggle came in. But it was almost... So almost too late to get any support from the military because the, the support lasts for two years. But mm-hmm. again, I didn't need any support getting a job. I needed lit- a bit of coaching, really, um, mm-hmm. or so. And that, from what I understand, and it wasn't there when I was going through, and I don't think it is now. It's that's the bit that was missing for me was just that little bit of coaching to help me find out who I was now. Um, and I was lucky enough that I've got one of my old staff, actually one of my old staff members, left, um, a civil servant, left the MOD and um, and is now a, a, a kind of, I suppose, a life coach, if you want to call them that. And I was lucky that, um, that I, I went and got some coaching from him, actually, and it, it really, really helped me. Oh, brilliant. Well done. Well, and, and that's so important, isn't it, to get the sort, to get the root, support that you need at the time. Yeah. I What I found is that people often become their own biggest problem creator. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do you know what? I, I'm the biggest one of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we all are at some stage yeah. in our lives because stuff happens and when it, and when it happens, you can either deal with it or maybe you don't feel you've got the ability to deal with it just at that time. How do you deal with failure now? Um, it's interesting because back in the day, I was being crushed by failure and that was a big fear for me going through the army was I've got to be perfect. I've got to do this because I can't fail. And fail was, was, was a word that I just wouldn't even wouldn't even have in my vocabulary because it, there's such a big fear around it. Whereas now, and especially since, you know, and I've been a coach now for about nine, 10 years um, and, you know, and tr- almost kind of going on that journey yourself. It's like they say, was it first attempt in learning? Isn't it? You know, so actually I, I don't, I don't use the word fail. Uh, I just look at it. It's a case. Okay. Do you know what? I tried that. That didn't work. 
let's try it something else or let's try it but a different way but it's that you know and it is that good old thing is you know if you keep doing what you've always done you'll get what you've always got and it's it's remembering that and go well if i keep trying the same way i am gonna fail for want of a better word uh, but i think for me having dropped the need to be perfect Actually, I don't fear failure anymore. I just see it as a, okay, it's a learning opportunity. You know, you look at um, job applications mm-hmm. and interviews. You know, I'm again, I remember my first ones going, oh, really scared. And what if I don't get it? And I'll be homeless. I'll be this. I'll be that. I'll be all that. And now it's like, you know what? Let's put the application in. See what happens. Mm-hmm. If I get through to interview, brilliant. Let's do the interview. See what happens. If I don't get it, I'll learn from it. If I do get mm-hmm. it and then make a decision to want the job you know and so but for me it was about overcoming that i need to be perfect and of course the other way of looking at it is failure is the feedback of champions yeah. and, and and you know i've i've failed a few times in fact quite a few times and it's from the lessons that i've learned that's enabled me to do things differently and better next time and and i suppose it it's what it all boils down to is getting to your target in the end, really. Well, they say you don't learn out in your comfort zone, do you? Yeah, so no. actually you've got to put yourself out there and that might mean that you fall on your ass. But like when you're a child, you never thought, oh, I'm down here, I'm never getting up. You're like, yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and just keep taking those steps forward, even if they're tiny little steps, Yeah. rather than going backwards. Exactly, and I know from what you from what you say, I've picked up that you've made quite a few good friends along the way, and now you you also want a building your network. How important do you think it, having a good social and business network is to enable you to get to where you want to be in life and business? I think you know what I think you can't do it by yourself, and that's the one thing that I've that I've learned, and I think the military helps you to learn that because sometimes it isn't what you know it's who you know, mm. and that's not about oh you get into positions that you shouldn't be in, you know, and you get promoted or whatever because you've got a mate. It's actually you know, even now if something comes up in work or at home, and I'll be like, oh, do you know what? I know someone who can help me with that, or if you just give me a little bit of a steer, or if they can't they can point me in the right direction and you just reach out rather than floundering or, you know, and I think it's, and I'm, I'm now starting to learn the benefits of it in business because you know, my, my little part-time business has been a side hustle for a number of years, but I want to move it into full time. And, you know, and that's how we kind of connected, isn't it? It's yeah. now learning the benefits of a business network and support that way. But, you know, it's, yeah, I think I think you you can't really put into words how valuable having good. You've got to make sure it's good support, yeah. you know, because you can get you can get drawn down to oh, pay me thousands of pounds and I'll sort this out for you or I'll do this for you, and they won't, you yeah. know. So so it, it yeah, it's good. It, it's having good people around you, and that and that's that's a very good point actually. I know that I've spent a lot of money on on the training that I've done. And some of it, using the old term, I've pissed a few frogs. I I know that there are people who, especially to guys who are coming out to the military, male and female, they get promised these empty words, really. They say, oh, well, you pay this and we can do that and we'll train you. And a lot of the time, it doesn't happen that way. 
and, and and they might do a bit of a few hours training, but then after that, there's no ongoing support. And that's why, as you mentioned, we met uh, at the business network that I've set up is because I believe that network is great. And if it's, it's, it's the old adage, like if you had a problem in the army, it wasn't a problem after you told your mate, because everyone knew. And it was it, a problem, <laughs> the problem halved, or it was less than half. Because yeah. everybody knew, and they come up and say, "What? What? What's the issue, mate? Come on, let's let's sort it out." And then it was just sorted, and that's what having the network is all about, in my eyes. Having a good coach or mentor—you've already touched on that. I mean, how how important has that been in your life, and, and how important has it been to people you help now? Um, well, for me, throughout my life, once I kind of got my head around it, because I was too proud. To reach out for help, I was too proud to accept it, you know, because, again, it's that military, it's the old military thing of if I tell you I'm struggling, then you'll see me as weak, which means then I'm not good at my job, I'm not going to get promoted, all of these kind of things. And it's one of those things that actually, from what I've seen with people and people that I helped in, in the military, is actually you come back stronger. Yeah. So actually, once I've got over myself and got through that, um, it coaching is vitally important for me, whether that be health coaching, coaching around my career, you know, or anything, because it, it, it's it's getting it out of your head. It's talking to someone else. And it's not about, you know, because coaching and mentoring is very different, as you know. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. It's not being told how to do something. It's exploring how you as an individual can do it, looking at your strengths. Mm. Yeah. looking at what you've got already and then maybe if the stuff that you've identified that you need to get yeah that's not the right way of doing that and being held accountable as well um you know and again not in the dogmatic oh you haven't done this uh, just okay so you haven't done that what 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 was it what happened you know what's changed yeah and that and that and you know and that's the, and that's for me and i think it's the it's the same for the people that i work with um you know to use my coaching skills all the time in my day job you know and sometimes and for me it's about psychological safety it's having that safe set it's not you know it's not about therapy or anything like that, but it's also quite therapeutic but it's having that safe space to be able to go this is who i am this is what i want to do or these are what my goals are or actually i'm not i don't even have a clue what I want to do, and then having someone just hold you safely and, and and work it through and not judge and not go, you should be doing that, or I can't believe you did that, or any of that, and then and and, and then going, okay, so you said you want to do this, let's kind of hold you accountable. So, you know, almost having someone to yeah. step back in with. And, and, you know, and the people that I work with, you know, I, I think – they like the fact that they can tell me anything and nothing's going to shock me, especially after all of the kind of <laughs> things that I've done in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not going to run away, but I'm also going to, I'm quite straight talking. Yeah. So, you know, if you need to be told something, I'm going to tell you it in the nicest yeah. possible way. Because again, sometimes we get in our own way, don't we? Yeah. And, and, and people go, oh yeah, oh, that's a brilliant idea. And I go, is it really? Is that realistic? Yeah. Having and just checking that out and to allow people to have clarity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I remember I because I, I did I did because I picked up on what you said there is the difference between coaching and mentoring, which there is yeah. really, and some people get it mixed up. I did a I did a, a piece on it, I wrote an article, and I also did a video blog on it about the difference in and I used it, the football analogy, because a lot of people like football and I looked at Kenny Dalgleish 
and Alex Ferguson. And Alex Ferguson was a great player, man, uh, coach, right, uh, and the manager of players. Kenny Dalgleish was a great, great coach and mentor. And what was the difference? Well, Kenny Dalgleish could do both, i.e. coach someone how to do it, but he understood how to do it as well because he was a great footballer and he was a great coach. Alex Ferguson wasn't so great at footballing. He was all right, but he was a blinking good coach. I mean, he's got to go down as one of the best coaches ever in the world. Uh, and so that's the difference between, like, the coach may have read about it, studied about it. The mentor has actually walked it. So if you want to get a really good mentor in your in your chosen profession, get someone who's done it well. But you can also have a good coach who's maybe not done it, but they just know the rudiments of business and it's the more the rudiments of your mind that that, that gets you there, isn't it? Yeah, I think sometimes actually not knowing about someone's situation means that I'm going to ask questions. Yeah. Uh, actually, they might, you know, and, they, these, uh, and you know what it's like when you've been doing a job for a while and then you start and someone asks you a question that's like a Billy Basic question, you go, oh, so why do I do that? Yeah. Or why do we do that? Or why is that the system? Or why is... And then they start unpicking that. Mm. Whereas, you know, again, I think sometimes when you know a lot about what people do, you just go, oh, yeah, yeah, get that. And then you ask a different question and you wouldn't actually go back to the basics. I think that can really help people sometimes as well. But I, I think that there's a benefit to all of it. It just depends on what people are looking for. And, um, you know, it's like I can mentor people in my old job because I know it's standing on my head. Um, I think I, now I'd rather coach them because, yeah, yeah it's not about me knowing it and me being there but it gives you that little bit of empathy I suppose and that little bit of understanding yeah but yeah so I like with coaching I like the fact that you it's almost a blank slate isn't it and you're going yeah. okay and that playful curiosity um you mm. know just being curious about how that is for you and also how can I support you in that what is it that you need because some people might not need accountability some people might you know I've, I've seen it some some people go Da, 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 da. Oh right, and then they'll write it down. I need to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And you sit there and go, "There's no need for me, is that?" Because you're self coaching, and that's you know, and that, that's kind of that's a good place as far as I'm concerned. My, my job is for people not to need me. Yeah, and 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 it's the nanny Mac fee, isn't it? When you need me and don't want me, I'll be here. And when you want yeah. me and don't need me, I'm off. That's it. That's it. And I like that because these are these are skills that you know that that we should. People, I think, I think everyone should learn coaching skills, and then you know, and we could peer coach, you know, not officially, unofficially in the workplace, yeah. and yeah. And, and and it's it's always interesting when people you see on the internet or you get emails on how to make ten thousand pound a week, easy as that, dead dead easy, and it's just going to happen overnight. Well, it might do if you've just got something that's so exclusive and unbelievably good, uh, and you've got a team around you. But if yeah. not, and you're starting on your own, well, maybe it's going to... I know that you can become financially free in about seven years if you've got the right stuff. It's not going to happen overnight. So, in my opinion, unless you've got something that's just radical and goes viral. Yeah. So so it does take time. So if you're listening, uh, and I'm sure you'll agree, won't you, Lou, Rome wasn't built in a day. No, and all... Also, don't fall foul of those people who are going to tell you that. Yeah. Because actually, it's 
they're making 10 grand a day because they're getting your money. Yeah. So it's it's interesting and, <clears throat> and essential that you get help from the right sort of people. And and talking about talking about that, what is something that someone leaving the military or has already left the military? What is the one thing they should recognise about how transferable their skills are to Civvy Street? Oh, do you know what? I uh, Military in, people are so underestimated and undervalued. But I think that's because we underestimate and undervalue ourselves. Mm. So I think, you know, and some of the stuff that we take for granted, actually people need to be taught how to do it. Even as Billy Basics is answering the telephone correctly. Or how you know, or you know, like just basic manners and just stuff like that. Or even a presentation, you know, given presentations, we're taught right from day one. You know, explain, demonstrate, imitate, practice. You go, oh yeah, that is such a skill in all kind of aspects. And and it's this bit. And you know, and when I was doing my degree, I the poor, I I poor students there, and you know, kind of, and they'd have and they'd have their notes, and they'd be stood there, and they go. And giving a presentation because they've never been taught how to do it, and it's like, and so that, that you know, even that, and you know, I know most of the people leave the military go, "What do you mean presentations? I'll stand up and talk to anyone. I'll do this, I know, because that's what we've been taught right from day one." Yeah. So it's it, it's about, and I think it, you know, it for me, it's about kind of there's probably more than one, and uh, it's you know, it's about making sure that you network. Talk to you know, get 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 part of the veterans community, um, especially the business community. Whether that be you going into business yourself or you're going to go and work, because actually the contacts out there are amazing and the support out there is amazing. And I think the veterans community has gone to the fact of well, no one else is going to help us, so fuck you. We're going to let's do it ourselves, and actually together we're stronger. Yeah. So <clears throat> network within the veterans community. Don't just think because you're getting out. I'm going to cut the military off altogether, you know, because you know, I'm, I don't know anyone who has successfully done that anyway, because, you know, that's a whole transition piece, isn't it, in your head? Mm. So network, don't underestimate yourself. I actually speak to some, mm. there's lots of experts out there that can help you um, transfer your military skills into civilian speak and have confidence. It's a little bit like, mm. I'm, you know, on mine, I'm now a learning and development specialist. Am I? Well, yeah, because I was a training warrant officer for a couple of years and I've been delivering yeah. training and I've done all of that. But initially for me to put that on my LinkedIn, I was like, oh, that feels really uncomfortable because <laughs> I'm not like, yes, you are. You know, so it's just those bits. Right. <laughs> and, and, and you've said it a few times, you're really lucky you are. So if, <laughs> if I just, just summarise what we've talked about, right? So at the age of two and a half, yeah, yeah, the tragic loss of your of your brother. Then, then your mother, your father came. Had to, had to come across to Liverpool, and you know, family life was tough. You you joined the cadets. You, you didn't want to go uh, uni, even though your qualifications were all right because you had imposter syndrome and didn't think you were good <laughs> enough. Then, then you went in the cadets. You thought this is quids, and you spoke to an officer who said you're not really good enough. Um, and, and your eyesight's not good enough. When maybe you were just saying, when you talk like a scouser, yeah, right, uh, which may be something that <laughs> you might want to deal with. Because I think I'm married to a scouser. I think scousers are nice, <laughs> and, and you, you've only got a bit of a twang. I can recognise it. Uh, 
So, I, yeah, and then you joined anyway. You joined the military. You became military police. Uh, monkey, as they're lovingly known. Uh, learned how to take the heat out of situations. Didn't make your first arrest until for seven years, which which is pretty a long time. But when you did make it, it was a good arrest. Everybody knew about it, all the hierarchy. You got out, transitioned, uh, because you, you didn't like the civilian who was in charge. Uh, now... You've done all of that. You're in you're in Civil Street, went to uni, passed your mental health degree. Right. So what's the secret of your success? And and I know don't never even go there saying I'm not successful. You might not be successful. I know I am. Yeah. What what's the secret? I, I'm owning my success now, whereas I wasn't a couple of years ago. <laughs> I think sheer determination and absolute um, you know, and, I start something and it has to finish, you know what I mean? And kind of that not giving up, that grit. That's, yeah, and, and also I think it's, it's kind of being open-minded just to to learn. I'm, I'm constantly learning, you know, always learning about people, about things, about whatever. You know, I've recently been diagnosed with adult ADHD, so that's probably a good bit of my success because I've just been bouncing around the world doing everything. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is just sheer determination. And a lot of that at the beginning was about being perfect. Now it's not. Now it's just about, you know what, actually things need to get done sometimes. And if things, you know, and if there's things that don't need to get done, it's also dropping them as well. So not having to be everything to everyone. Um and and kind of yeah, and trying to just be trying to be everything to me. As, an, as a human being and looking after myself. Because then if I'm good, the people that I'm working with are good. And you just slotted that in uh, in a couple of words. You've just been diagnosed with adult ADHD. So how does that affect you, if it does? Uh, yeah, well, how does it affect you um, in a good way and a, in a not-so-good way? Because um, it's new, um, I think it, it, it's... And it's only come out because I was I was literally struggling to focus and there's lots of stuff and all that kind of stuff and don't even go there. Joys and menopause, all the rest of it, you know. Yeah. Um. But and so, if, but if I look back, it's affected my so it's my ability to maintain friendships and relationships and stuff. And so a lot of people have fallen by the wayside. So that's the bad bit. But in the good bit, um. Because there's a lot of um, they say they say attention deficit, where it's actually it's it's like an overactive attention. So I'm literally I want to say, oh, I want to learn that. Oh, now I'm going now I'm going to learn that. Now I'm going to learn that. Now I'm going to learn. And basically, you know, so I've got a file this thick of certificates of courses that I've done, all that I use the skills for every day, but not individually because I've just got oh that looks interesting or you look interesting. Tell me about you. And and so. I mean, and energy and the energy, you know, it's kind of, we talked before this about the, the, the family activity breaks, um, um, charity work that I was doing for, I think it's about nine years. Um, and again, I hyper-focused on that because I believed in the, you know, it's about bereaved military families, about bereaved military children. It's taking families or children to do outdoor educate outdoor activities, stuff that we did in the military to build their confidence, bring them back into the military bubble. And so you've got outdoors and bereavement. Two of my 
enjoyable and that sounds really weird about bereavement but two places where I feel really really comfortable and I hyper focused on that and I worked my little butt off for all that time and that was that a lot of that was AJC because I was I was I had a full-time job as well I was running my side gig I was doing something else I had friends that was doing all of this as well as that and, and 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 that's and that's commendable, and that's actually what you're <laughs> MBE for, isn't it? To get an MBE is a massive achievement. So congratulations! Yeah. Uh, and that was all to do with this. So just, just just touch on that a little bit more. What sort of stuff did you do? Um, so I started off as one of the first volunteers on the pilot project. <clears throat> uh, it was and and the whole thing was organised at the time by one major, um, actually a monkey, um, and. And, and she was given the job of organising, and this is like kind of getting, you know, recruiting volunteers, sorting out the camps, you know, finding locations, sorting yeah. out activities, um, interviewing volunteers, training volunteers. Um, and so I kind of just thought, oh, well, I'll help you out for the next one. So I thought, love this. I'll be back here every year if I can. Um, I'll help you out. So that helping out turned me into, I suppose, the equivalent of a volunteer coordinator. So I recruited volunteers, interviewed them, helped train them, booked the training kind of places, made, allocated the volunteers to the various camps because they're in different parts of the country. And say so that was the bit that would be done outside the camp time. And then when the camps were on, they're about a week in length. I volunteered on the camps either because we had like a breathing support specialist there. So either doing that role or as the years went on, actually running the camp itself. Um, so, <coughs> so yeah, so as I said, I did, I, know, I didn't, I think, was it, yeah, seven or eight years, I can't remember now. Um, That's so brilliant. That I did that almost full time on top of my job and life and what have you. And by, and by the way, I, I, I'd like to, I know you've been <coughs> coughing a few times. I would like to thank you for joining me this morning because you've had COVID, haven't you? And, and that shows you, you, you're recovering from that and you're still able to join me, which is fabulous. So on that, I'd like you to close with the Colombo question, if you like. What's the one tip you would give to someone who's coming out of the military or a veteran who is already out of the military, maybe struggling, not sure what to do? What's the one tip you would give them to help them be successful reach out for help it's and it's as clear cut as that you know don't keep it to yourself don't be proud and it's never too late to reach out just reach out there's going to be people who are going to help you brilliant fabulous and for you what's next in your amazing journey hopefully full-time employment in my own training and coaching business um, you know, again, slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. Um, but that's what that's that's kind of where I want to go next. Okay, thank you so much, Lou O'Connell, MBE. You're an absolute star. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. <laughs>